Hi everyone, this is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I'm honored to be joined by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger to talk with them about their brand new book, Pivot, the Priorities, Practices, and Powers that Can Transform Your Church into a Tove Culture. And, you know, this is this is really a, kind of a sequel to a book that came out a couple of years ago called uh, Tove. And, you know, or actually the full title is A Church Called Tove, you know, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. And we're going to get um, into kind of the, the origin story of this project and, and some of the things that go along with it. But I remember reading it several years ago and uh it's just a it it's a book that is very timely and helps us address a lot of the abuses of power particularly uh in the church that are happening and how to navigate uh just those dynamics as well and so very very much needed resource and uh highly recommend it as well and, you know, one of the things that I want to do here on the Learner's Corner is create a safe place to have the types of conversations that we're going to have today of how do you be the church and what what exactly does that look like and dive in into some of the things and as we're going to do today that that sometimes just make it difficult to be the church. And so... We want to be the place where you could continue to learn about those things as long with many other things as well as uh, as we just all find ourselves on this journey of lifelong learning. And, you know, one of the things that you could do if you find yourself on that journey is subscribe to my Substack, to where I just give uh, three resources every single week of some of the things that are just engaging my curiosity, some of the things that are making me think from podcasts to movies to books and uh, to quotes, uh, just just so many things. Uh, there, there is no limit to what it could potentially be, but again, you could just go onto my Substack and subscribe to that stuff, uh, right there and you'll get it each and every single week. Now, as I mentioned, you know, this, this book pivot is really birthed out of this idea of what it means to be, uh, a Tove church, a church that uh, radiates him and embodies uh, goodness and was very excited to get a chance to talk with Scott and Laura and talk with them about this. Now, uh, let me tell you a little bit about the both of them, and then we will jump into the conversation. Scott McKnight is professor of new Testament in at Northern seminary and a recognized authority on the new Testament, early Christianity and the historical Jesus. He is the author of more than 90 books, including a church called Tove, the award-winning The Jesus Creed and The Blue Parakeet. He and his wife, Kristen, live in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. And Laura Berenger is a teacher and the co-author of A Church Called Tove. She is also a children's ministry curriculum writer for Grow Kids and co-authored the children's version of The Jesus Creed. And she is a graduate of Wheaton College and resides in the northwest suburbs of Chicago with her husband, Mark, and their three beagles. And uh, also one other uh, fun fact is that uh, Laura is actually Scott's daughter as well. And so without any further wait, here is our conversation.
Well, Lauren, Scott, it's so good to have you both on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Caleb. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Caleb. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, I know that we're going to talk a lot about uh, your new book, Pivot, but so much of this is rooted in your first book that you guys co-authored together, Tove. And so I thought it might be good to just kind of start with where that project began for the both of you, kind of like the origin story of that, and then what led you to uh, writing this book, Pivot, as well. And Laura, maybe we could get started with you, and then Scott, you can jump in on that as I well. I can correct her if she makes any mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> did you know he's my dad? I did. I did oh, know right. that. Yes. That's why he's talking to me like that. <laughs> Sometimes people don't know. Um, Church Called Tove was completely unexpected, not something I certainly never planned, or I don't think my dad did either. Um, It honestly started with the false narratives that we saw coming out of Willow Creek. Mm -hmm. Those of us who live here in the Chicago area um, remember March 2018 when the story broke in the Tribune about and the women that had come forth the truth about what he had done to them. And um, our family had a lot of conversations about this. We were former um, attenders, members of Willow Creek. And so it was very personal to us because of that. And also because we knew a lot of the women and we knew them to be people that would be truthful and not do the things that Willow Creek was claiming they were doing, like colluding to bring Bill down before he retired. And so for me, naively, this was the first time that I had seen a church do this, protect its reputation instead of tell the truth. And like I said, it was personal because we knew the women that they were hurting. And um, my dad had read a book and dad, you could talk about that, about um, German pastors and how they responded um, in the wake of the Holocaust. And not that we're claiming that Willow Creek was behaving like the Holocaust. Nobody's saying that. But the parallels were pretty striking, the false narratives that they were telling. And that's how the book started with those false narratives. That was the first chapter that my dad outlined. And I think I I ended up developing that chapter, but the outline was his, and that became A Church Called Tove. Yeah, I I did read a book called A Church Divided by Matthew Hockenoss, who's a specialist on German history, especially on the Holocaust years. And as I was reading, I mean, at the time, Laura, I was talking to Laura frequently, and, and Chris, my wife, her mother, over and over about the Willow Creek situation. And Laura was pestering me to write a book about this. And I didn't want to write a book about this because I wanted to write a book on Revelation, which took a long time to get out because of writing the Tove. But um, I, uh, as I was reading this book, just for my own enjoyment on the German pastors, I was stunned by the parallels between how the German pastors dealt with the questions, say, the big question was, were you complicit in the Holocaust? What did you do during the Holocaust? They refused to take responsibility, and I began to take notes 
And the notes became the outline for the chapter on false narratives. So that's where the book began. But our editor at Tyndale, his name is Dave, asked, asked us, after we had sort of written the whole book uh, in pretty much rough draft form, because then you got to see what the editors think should be done with it. Um, he said, what are the, let's say, the top two characteristics of a toxic church or a toxic church leader? And um, I said right away, this one to me was easy. It was a, nar a narcissistic uh, leader and a power through fear leader. And uh, so he said, let's start the book there. So then he helped us reorganize the structure of the book so that it moved from expose of toxicities in churches and among pastors toward um, uh, a redemptive dimension of what can happen. So that, that's, that's sort of the story of how the book began. I mean, the story began because of Bill Hybels and his behavior with women in the church and because the Chicago Tribune exposed it and then the New York Times joined in on the story. By then, the uh, as we say in fishing, the jig was up, and there was no option but to tell the truth and admit what happened. So um, that's where it began, but the actual writing of the book uh, started when I persuaded myself that I had something to say on the basis of the false narratives, but I didn't <laughs> tell Laura for quite a while. Because I, uh, I wanted to write no, on Revelation. Did. I think you did that. Didn't tell you till Christmas <laughs> okay. that year. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we actually ended up talking about that book a few months ago in uh, for yeah, the Revelation yeah, yeah. book too. Yeah. Um, so so take me to you know the uh, a church called Tove has been out for a couple of years, and you're you're releasing. I mean, by the time that this podcast is out, the book is out by now. And so talk to me about um, Pivot and where Pivot began for you for you both and just realizing that we need to or you need to write that. And Laura, maybe we could start with you. And then Scott, uh, you can you can chime in with your thoughts then. <laughs> you can correct me. <laughs> yeah. It again, is not something that either of us had had expected or planned. What happened was after a church called Tove was released, we got an enormous amount of interest in the book, which was surprising for me. I'm not an I'm not an author, so I had no idea what to expect. I definitely did not expect the outpouring of interviews and questions and letters that we got. Um, a question surfaced, a few questions surfaced that became more and more prevalent as time went on, as groups had time to like absorb Tove and talk about it and ingest it. And they kept asking us, well, how do we do this? Like, okay, what if what if our culture is toxic? How do we transform it? Or um, what are some red flags I should look for? Or how do I create a culture of goodness? And that's that is what launched the pivot project is our attempt our prayerful attempt to best answer those questions and supply more of a um like a solid plan so our friend steve carter um says tove is the what 
what the problem is. Pivot is the how. Okay, how do we do this? And that's how pivot. That's how pivot started. Is is the answering of those questions. Okay, so Laura uh, said something, and I would say this. I positively told her after we finished twelve, I'm not going to do another one of these books because I have a book on Revelation, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, but we got Caleb. I've done. I have done with Laura and by myself. 180 podcasts on that Tove book. So that's that's one every other day for a whole year. That's a lot of podcasts. Yeah. And um, so we knew there was a lot of interest in this book, but we kept being asked that one question, what, what can we do? So we fumbled along sort of answering the question. I began to think about it, look at the biblical passages that I thought mattered. I read just a little bit. Wait, let me interrupt you. At first, Caleb, I just said, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you do. <laughs> like, I'm a teacher. I don't know what to yeah. do. Okay. Okay, go ahead, Dad. Sorry. See, it's hard for me to get anything done because she interrupts me here. I don't even remember where I was. But um, <laughs> we, I read a little bit of literature about this, but by and large, it wasn't the, it wasn't uh, something that you could research. You know, how do you solve toxic problems in a church? There isn't a lot of stuff written on this. But what happened is um, in one of the earliest posts I did well before, I mean, a year before we were done writing Tove, I had a post in which I said, what churches need more of is goodness. And the number of people who responded to me provoked uh, me into, into pondering the word goodness in the Bible. The Hebrew word is Tove. So it was with Tove that the project began that gave us a redemptive. So I began to ponder what would a Tove church look like? What, what are the kinds of things that we need to start talking about? And so we just started answering questions. And I found in classes, students asking me questions and people making suggestions and saying things. And the next thing you know, um, I thought we had a book proposal and we gave it to Tyndale and they said, okay, let's go with this. And uh, so we had, you know, titles for books are always, there's always a game that you have to play. It's almost like chess with publishers at times because they all think they know. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to enough people who work in the publishing business over the years to know that they don't know much more than authors know when it comes to titles, because they'll say, no, that's not a good title, and it becomes a great title. And they'll say, here's a great title, and it's not a good title. So it's it's really a, a, a bit of a spitting into the wind. They didn't like Tove, but eventually they realized that was a great title. And we- They didn't think we should have uh, any yeah, Hebrew, words Hebrew words. So. In the title, so, so we were messing around with this this book. We had different titles. And I all of a sudden, one night, I just said, we need to use the word pivot. So I, I text Laura, Chris and I, are, you know, I'm tell, reading the, te the text to Chris. Laura says, Dad, you can't use pivot because everybody watches this show. What's it called? Friends or something where they say pivot. Um, and I said, oh, nobody's paying attention <laughs> to that. And Laura said, oh, yeah, everybody does. He didn't even, he hadn't even heard of yeah, the show. I Fred. didn't know anything about it. <laughs> I read books. So. 
Um, by the way, Dad, you sound like a publisher's dream, arguing with them about titles. Yeah, they they don't mind that. I mean, as long as you don't get okay. obnoxious about it, uh, they'll they'll play the game of chess with you. But you're, you have to kind of negotiate a little bit, show that you're willing to listen. But here's the the fortuitous, uh, serendipitous element of pivot: is the last three letters spelled backwards are tove. So yeah, it was a match made in heaven. That word pivot. And by the way, funny story. Um, so we sent the title to to Tyndale Pivot, and they really liked it. And a few weeks later, they came back and said, "We can't stop talking about how we see Tove and Pivot." And my dad and I were like, "Man, yeah. why didn't we think of that?" I thought your friend is the one who saw it when she was drawing it on the napkin. No. No, so okay. Tyndale saw it first, but then, but then my friend um, played with the lettering. Mm -hmm. She's an artist, and she played with the lettering on the front cover, and she's the one that made Tove pop on it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the whole the whole how the title came about and the covers are all fun stories for us. Yeah, my dad knows what the show Friends is now. <laughs> Uh, I was gonna say, and that in itself is an accomplishment. <laughs> pivot, uh, and I sent him a clip. I sent him a clip of the couch pivot scene. Now we need uh, to pivot to the topic uh, of the book. Yeah, uh, okay. Scott, I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned, and you know, you were talking about this idea of Tove and goodness, and that it's it's sad to say, but that is a shift that I think a lot of churches need need to make towards is. is choosing that goodness to where sometimes we could focus on, you know, growing our congregation or growing the giving or the budget in that. And I would love to hear um, from the both of you, like if, if you're a church leader and you found yourself in this thing to where you're, you're trying to increase giving, you're trying to increase number of volunteers and trying to increase um, the attendance, how, how do you go about starting to make that shift? towards goodness and developing like Christ-like character in your congregation. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. This is what the whole I know and this is what the whole question. book is about. We have nine different uh, yeah. chapters about the about what's involved. So let let me just say a few things. One of the first yeah. things I learned in talking about Tove, this was still in the Tove book, but it's really the whole theme of the pivot book. As I had a student who, who had just finished his Ph.D. in organizational transformation at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And he says, he says, I like your idea of Tove, but he said, um, I want you to know that in organizational transformation theory, led by Edgar Schein, who is the leading voice on this at Massachusetts, MIT, he said, when the organization is fully committed to transformation, it takes seven years. Now, churches are never fully committed because they're volunteers, most of them, and most of them are just attenders. So you're dealing with three or four concentric circles. So yeah. the first thing I would say is it's going to take a long time. You have to be in it for the long haul. And the second thing I would say is you have to formulate an idea of what you want. Let's just say you want to become a church that nurtures Tove in spiritual formation. We'll just use that as an example. 
you have to sit down and form a coalition. This would really be the third point. You have to form a coalition with people in your church, let's say, who are, I hate to use this expression, but it's being used everywhere, stakeholders, that is, people with a vested interest in the church, fully committed in that sense. They really want to participate. You have to form a coalition with those people in which coalition those people contribute to the central ideas that are going to be formulated to become the church's vision for where we're headed. And that will take a long time. It doesn't take place in a sermon series in six weeks. It's going to take leaders with the capacity to listen to other people, to let them make contributions, and to evaluate your church to determine what's good and what's bad, what's tov and what's raw, what's got to go in order to formulate a, a, and to form a church that actually is going to move toward character transformation. So those are some of the ideas in the book, and Laura can contribute. She can add on what she wants to say here because this is our book together. Um, yeah. It is... It's a lot of work, and this is not for the faint-hearted. And there's going to be a lot of failure, and you're going to lose people, and you're going to realize your strength as a leader formerly was standing on a platform on Sunday and preaching, exhorting, inspiring sermons with great outlines on the screens, with great pictures. And you're going to realize that that's not the goal, Sunday morning services. The goal is the transformation of people's character. And that is a complete revolution in the church. I'll finish with one little story. I was talking about this with my doctoral students who are all pastors. And I was talking about how long it takes to change a church. Of course, I'd never done it. And some of them had. So I wanted to hear what they had to say. One of, the, one of my students says, Scott, says, you know how long it takes to move a piano from one side of the stage in the front of a church to the other? I said, no. He said, one inch a month. And there is the lesson of church transformation right there. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take a long time. Mm -hmm. Well, that even speaks to, like, even character transformation, yeah. let alone organizational transformation, is very yeah. slow yeah. in that. Laura, I would love to hear uh, your thoughts on that, of maybe some of the, the shifts that we can make more towards goodness in the church space. I keep thinking as you guys are talking about the case study that we wrote about in Pivot. I had one day a book showed up on my doorstep. My dad had it sent to me from Amazon. It was called Renovation of the Church. And it is by two, they were both, they were co-pastors of the church at the time. Their names were Mike Lucan and Kent Carlson. And they were co-pastors of a church in Oak Hills, California. And shortly after, actually, I don't know how long the church had been in existence, but the two of them in 1984 or shortly after that, came out here to Chicago to attend a Willow Creek conference, and they ended up adopting its attractional model for their church back in California, Oak Hills. 
And they offer, they don't offer criticism of Willow Creek. They say, in fact, everything that we tried worked. Our attendance exploded. We became a mega church. But they, um, over time, started to grow very uneasy, like, like spiritually, like in their soul uneasy. Um, and they had observed that the congregation had become if you will, consumers, like mm -hmm. consumers of a show. And they said it felt like we were feeding a monster, like there was a monster in our basement and we had to feed it. And like every Sunday we would feed it and we would put on this great spectacular show and then they would be filled with like horror and dread because they had to make it even better the next weekend for the consumers who were coming back and expecting more. And so... The point of this story is it's a beautiful book. I would highly recommend it to anybody listening is that they ended up listening to that stirring in their spirit and surrendering to it. They read Dallas Willard, they read Eugene Peterson and more, and they ended up completely transforming their culture, no more attraction. And they transformed it into what they called a spiritual formation culture model. And like my dad was talking about, it was long, it was tumultuous. The staff was totally confused because they had been hired for like their skill and their competency. And the congregation was completely confused because they weren't coming to a show anymore. But they just like, and their attendance dropped a lot, by the way. Um, but they just like from the pulpit, they just continually pushed against the consumerism that had driven the culture and they taught people, they, they discipled people instead. Mm -hmm. So I know that's a very long winded answer to your question, but um, that's, that's really what our whole book is about is um, transforming and removing what has been toxic, removing what has been toxic so that you can transform a culture into one of goodness. We distinguish between three words, change, shift, and transformation. You know, change is you move the, you move the piano, you change where the, where the people sing from, you change where the pastor preaches from, the preacher. Shift is a stronger sense, is that uh, we're going to move to two services on Sunday. We're going to have adult classes uh, on Sunday morning, or we're going to move them to Wednesday night or Thursday night. A transformation is a radical revolution in the church where you move from one theory of the church or what happens on Sunday to a completely different one that involves everything having to change. That's what we're talking about. We know that there are countless church. We, we know there's lots of good churches, Caleb. We're not, I'm not down on mm -hmm. churches. I'm down on toxic pastors. Um, yeah. We are up on churches, but we know that there are lots of good churches, but we also know that there are so many churches locked down into a model that will never lead to what needs to happen. And they're good people. They're doing good things but they'll never lead to spiritual formation. You can't do it mm. preaching sermons on Sunday morning. It won't happen. Mm. 
Yeah. Talk to me about, like, this, I know this is a very big question, but how do we get there? How do we get to that point to where it is It is about, like, you know what, I'm doing the work, I'm preaching the sermons, you know, I have a big crowd, I have a big budget and stuff. How do how we get there and away from cultivating that, that goodness, that tove that you were talking about? Any, any yeah, thoughts well, from either of Yeah, well, the thing is, the thing is, that that model that you're talking about, a good sermon on a good Sunday morning with lots of people, that's a whole culture that's formed. That happened over time. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen yeah. because someone last week sat down and said, we want to have a big church. Nobody thinks about this, but we yeah. want to have a big one. Nobody yeah. thinks. Actually, that happened in the 80s and 90s in the United States with the managerial revolution. But let's just say that you want to make it, uh, this change. You have to have what I call in the book a transformation agent who sort of is the kingpin the leader the voice the collaborator on this transformation if it's the senior pastor you're in trouble i think i think it needs to be somebody else but Mm. that's that's not for me to decide and that person has got to go uh start to meet with people study the bible pray discern what this church needs to become and they need to start talking to people and building a bigger, let's just say, an inner circle of transformation agents who have all contributed to the suggested proposed vision of where the church could go. Then you have to start broadening that and you have to keep listening. Then you have to broaden that. Now, this is taken two years right now, okay? It's going to take a long time. And then, so you're yeah. going to have to have somebody who's in charge of this, who's going to work on this for five years. Um, so and then you start broadening it. And I know a pastor who did not go to his church with the vision for the church that had been percolating inside with leaders for five years. It took five years before they went public. That That's the only way it can happen. And even then, that's still a mega church model because now we have, let's say, 200 people who are committed to this, but you've got, let's say, 2,000 people in your church. That 1,800 people yeah. are going to have to sign on, and they are not owners of it. They're just aff- affirmers of it. It's going to take a while yeah. to, for it to percolate out. And so I think that the standard model of seven years is a really good idea. But that would be. I mentioned this briefly before, but that would be where what I would say, uh, how do you do it? Uh, that's the big idea right there. Mm-hmm. Form a coalition. Mm-hmm. Something yeah. else we've something else we've learned um, through the research of Shine and others is that it's really important to assess where you're at. So if you are concerned that there is something toxic in the culture. Maybe you have an idea of what it is, but Shine is really big on that, that you have to be very clear about what the problem is. And that takes some type of an assessment. We offer one in Pivot, the Tove tool. Our assessment is not normed. It's not statistically sound, but it is based on what you would call the moral categories of the Bible, the fruits of the spirit, our circle of Tove. Um, and it allows the Tove tool allows for whoever wants to use it, cultures, groups, communities, um, to assess 
where they are at. And so maybe they'll come out like strong in some areas. Maybe, for example, they'll be like, you know what, we're we're not doing well at putting people first. We're we're doing a lot of work at protecting our institution, our reputation, um, but we're doing that at the expense of people. So it takes um, it takes a willingness to surrender to that and to hear the truth about yourself and the organization. But understanding that is essential to the whole process and being really specific about what the problem is and how we're going to go about growing in this area. Mm-hmm. Scott, I want to go back to something that uh, you briefly mentioned. You said for, for the person who's the transformation agent, sometimes it's better or it might always be better for that person not to be the senior pastor. Can you explain that just a little bit or elaborate on that? Well, um, okay. A senior pastor uh, has a lot of responsibilities, and they are mm-hmm. they will often see themselves as the preeminent leader in a church. So they have to be involved in this. But when the senior pastor, who has an who has an asymmetry of power with everyone in the church, I don't care if you want to call them elders or not probably the senior pastor is a pope, okay? That pastor's vested interest in his ideas when challenged will provoke problems. And the senior pastor has got to step aside for a coalition to form that represents a wide spectrum of people in the church. Because, as a general rule, the ordinary people in the church, untrained, non-seminary people, do not want to challenge the pastor. And pastors don't want to be challenged by such persons, and often they dismiss such people, and they fire them, or they get rid of them, and they leave the church so that we can conform to what the pastor wants. So, I think that it would be, it is profoundly wise for the senior pastor to step aside for the simple reason that the pastor embodies in doing that and visual envisions for the people and shows to the people that it's not his idea, it's the church's mm-hmm. idea, it's the leader's ideas, mm-hmm. it's not his. Now, this is intensely, uh, makes the pastor intensely vulnerable. It's risky. Uh, It's risky for the transformation agent or the leaders in the transformation to, in a sense, be the authorities of where this is going and what's happening. But if they're not willing to do that, they're never going to get there anyway. So they might as well realize it's either going to be a top-down coercive leadership or it's genuinely going to be formed on the basis of what people want so that there can be ownership. You know, if you start a church with friends, this is a very typical story. You start a church with friends. It's totally owned by everybody because they're all talking about what they want. All right. That's what you're trying to create, that setting. But once you're 10 years into the church and you got somebody who's the preacher and who's getting paid and who's full-time and nobody else is full-time, that person now has such a vested interest in everything that happens that everybody's listening to him. That that's not the way to lead to a church revolution or transformation. 
So. Yeah. Laura, one of the things I, I would love to hear from you, because I, I know that in this type, any, any type of really hard and difficult work, we are tempted to look for the easiest option in that. And I would love to hear from you. What, what's something that if we start engaging in this work, that is really important that we might underestimate the importance of it? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I'm going to give a general answer. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say surrendering to the spirit mm-hmm. and following where he leads, not going in with your own agenda, but listening like Oak Hills did that I shared earlier, listening to the disruption, the unease, being still, asking God where he's leading, and then surrendering to that and following it. Mm -hmm. And being willing to listen to um, the hard truth about yourself. Maybe sometimes that's the hardest of all and the hard truth about perhaps the organization that you're leading. And... um, not defending it, but just approaching it and hearing it humbly can lead to sometimes that's where transformation begins sometimes. Uh, We talk about um, three powers at work in church transformation. The three powers are, (laughs) and I believe in this one more than most people, the power of the congregation's culture to shape where we go, which has to grow and change, but at the same time, it's a huge influence. That's a big part of Tove. The second is, as Laura mentioned, the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean that the Holy Spirit's not a part of the church. It's just that in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is the agent of transformation in people's lives through the fruit of the Spirit. It comes from the Spirit, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So... So that is, so when I talked earlier about vulnerability on the part of the leader, that is what we're talking about, is that surrender to whatever the Spirit is going to lead the church to do. The third is uh, is a change of topics, is to grace, is that it's not the result of our genius or our technology or our strategies or our preaching or our music, our worship team, and the handsomeness of the people who are on the platform. That's not what's going to make this uh, a transformation into Tove? It's going to be the grace of God, which means we have to be surrendered to God to let God work in us, knowing that it is the power of God in us that is going to do the gospel work if, if we're going to get to a gospel result. So, you know, I, I agree with Laura. I think the, the knockdown issue is surrendering. And that is that's a far bigger issue than most people realize because that means power has to shift. <laughs> yeah. We have a quote. This is semi-related. Yeah. Um, we talk about the author Anne Marie Slaughter in our book, and I forget even who she is, but I love her stuff. Um, but she talks about getting feedback. And let's say your feedback is 96% good and 4% bad. She says, run to the 4%. Mm. 
that's what you need to look into. And I thought that's, that's so simple yet so profound. And that's kind of, you know, that's part of being willing to hear, like not everybody has good things to say and you need to listen to all of it. It's interesting, Laura, because uh, Slaughter, she's a big wig, big wig in leadership. Okay. Um, I apologize, yeah, Anne-Marie Slaughter. But, um, okay. How often do we hear this play to your strengths? You know, this is this is tennis, this yeah. is sports, this is golf, this is basketball. Play to your strengths. Give the ball to Michael Michael Jordan. All right. Um, but in if you want to grow, you have to run to your weaknesses and face mm -hmm. them and let them be transformed by exposure to the work of God. Well, I know we're uh, coming up on our time together, but just as uh, in our final few minutes, I always just love asking, is there anything that we haven't talked about? I know there's so much other stuff in the book that we could talk about, but is there anything else just top of mind for either one of you that you want to uh, make sure that we mention in regards to the book or any ideas in there? The, yeah, um, Scott. We think power is really important. And we learned from mm -hmm. from Diane Langberg, and uh, I've been teaching uh, for a long time some of the themes of power in the New Testament. But I finally got to write them out in in this sec in a section in this book. Is that the tendency for power is as a neutral thing that we have the power to influence people, but leaders uh, often ramp that up power over, and they start dominating because they can and they get what they want. And they think what they want is what God wants and what they want actually works and does really well. So therefore they were right. So people should listen to them all the time. That's power over. We think the New Testament teaches two different ideas of power. That is power with, that is to share power with others, move over and let someone else stand on the platform with you and power for others to empower them so that you get off the platform and let someone else have that power. We really think power is at the center of the transformation of a church culture. And it will be in the way every day. Laura, any, any final thoughts or anything else from the book that you want to share? No, I think that's a good way to end. Who, who has the power and how are they using it? Mm. And you know, personally, what power do I have and how am I using my power? Am I using it the way that Jesus taught me to use it? Mm -hmm. I, I agree. That's a great way to end the conversation. Well, I just want to say, or I know that people are going to want to keep up with the both of you and get uh, a, uh, a church called Tove and get Pivot as well. Where's the best place for people to go to keep up with the both of you and uh, get both books? Well, we're both most active on Twitter. I'm still calling it Twitter, but it's called X, I suppose. <laughs> but that's, I think that's where we're most active. Yeah. We're both also on Instagram. You can also find us on our website, churchcalledtove.org. Um, I have my a, dad is a I'm not so I, active on Twitter. Yeah. I post on Twitter, but I don't look at it much. Facebook, mm -hmm. but... You tag him. If you tag my dad, he'll, yeah. the, he'll um, see it. Yeah. Yeah. The book comes out, we should get one by within the next couple of weeks. We should get our copies. So it's not due, I think it's yeah. September 19th or something like that is when it's 
supposed to. Yeah. I know that by the time that this episode comes out, the book okay. will be out. So they'll be able to order it wherever, uh, wherever they so okay. choose. Yeah. Great. Well, I just want to say thank you both so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for just the, the great conversation. And thank you for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Thank you, Caleb. Yeah. Thank you, Caleb. You know, I think the biggest thing that this conversation still has me thinking about after after having it is just the idea of of sowing and reaping and that it takes time and that it takes many years for for culture to change and realizing how impatient that we can be and realizing that that it takes time for people to change and and that for those of us who are who are leaders of the church our our job is to is to point people to Jesus embody his goodness and and his ways as much as we can and love and love people during that and not get so caught up in in what is easily measured what is easily uh, defined as success and doing the hard work of trying to figure out what does what does true success look like as a church in wrestling with that I know that those are those are some of the things that I'm just currently thinking about and some of the things that I'm I'm trying to figure out as as being a part of my own church as well so that's one of the things that I'm thinking about that's one of the things that I'm learning from and again if you want to keep up with me and and some of the other things that I'm learning from please subscribe to my Substack to where I just share three things each week that are making me think some of the things that are just engaging my curiosity and some of the things that I'm currently learning from. And that could be from a, uh, from a video game to a quote, to a book, to a podcast, to a movie, a TV show, um, a song. There's just so many things that it could potentially be. And so, yeah, those are, again, just check out the show notes and you can check out the, the Substack as well. And I think that's all that I have for today. So I want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. And thank you uh, to Laura and to Scott for being on the podcast and the great conversation. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.